Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is John T. Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. This week on the show, we're continuing along the narrative thread of David Lynch's career as a filmmaker, briefly stopping by at his time directing the 1984 adaptation of Dune. We have, of course, already looked at this film on the podcast, so feel free to look back at episode 7 of the show with Jack Sherlock if you want to catch up on everything to do with the story and lore of Frank Herbert's novel and this film as an adaptation. But this week, we're revisiting it as an important signpost in David Lynch's career and, as it would turn out, an important step forwards for Lynch towards Blue Velvet. Follow me into a world of studio executives, production mandates and the importance of filmmakers having final cut on their own films. David Lynch's Dune. beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as June. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected... Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown. An incredible secret has been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meet. I see two great houses. Feeding. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. We have worms sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. A world where the mighty... This is genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. The mad. <laughs> I will kill him! I will love you forever. And the magical... Father, the sleeper has awakened! ...will have their final battle. Show the slightest pity or mercy! Emperor, we come for you! 
a spectacular journey through the wonders of space and the mysteries of time. From the boundaries of the incredible to the borders of the impossible. Now, Frank Herbert's widely read, talked about, and cherished masterpiece comes to the screen. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. As we've already covered the narrative of this film on a previous episode, we're going to skip the usual recap and dive straight back into the world of David Lynch where we last left off with the release of The Elephant Man. The Elephant Man was of course a massive critical and financial success for Lynch, garnering him his first recognition from the Academy Awards and turning him into a money-making prospect for film studios around the world. In typical Lynch fashion, however, he was still enamoured by the idea of Ronnie Rocket, an original screenplay that he initially wanted to make immediately after Eraserhead. A few months into 1981, Rick Nasita, an agent at what was then the most powerful entertainment conglomerate in the country, Creative Artist Agency, began representing David Lynch. He was introduced to Lynch by Jack Fisk, whose wife, Sissy Spacek, had been Nasita's client since 1974. By the time Nasita came onto the scene, offers were coming Lynch's way left and right, but Hollywood doesn't just write blank checks. Lots of producers were up for another elephant man, but nobody wanted to do another Eraserhead. This obviously clashed with Lynch's desire to make Ronnie Rocket. Jonathan Sanger and Mel Brooks, both of whom worked closely with Lynch on The Elephant Man, wanted Lynch to do the Jessica Lange picture, Francis, which was written by The Elephant Man co-writers Eric Berggren and Chris DeVore, but that never ended up happening. It was around this time that Lynch was also offered the job of directing what was then the third and final Star Wars film, Return of the Jedi. Did you turn down George Lucas for directing Star Wars Return of the Jedi? I was asked uh, by George uh, to uh, come up to see him and talk to him about directing, which would would be the third Star Wars. And I had next door to zero interest. But I always admired George. You know, George is a guy that does what he loves, and I do what I love. The difference is what George loves makes hundreds of billions of dollars. (laughs) So I thought I should go up and at least visit with him. And it was incredible. I had to go to this building in L.A. first and get a special credit card, and I had to get special keys, and a letter came, and a map. And um, then I went into the airport, and I flew up, and then they had a rental car all ready for me, and this uh, keys, and you know, everything was set, and I was to drive to this place, and I came into an office, and there was George. And he, he talked with me for a little bit, and then he said, I want to show you something. Now, right about in this time, I started getting a little bit of a headache. Just, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Okay. So, he took me upstairs, and he showed me these things called Wookiees. And now, this headache is getting, you know, getting stronger. (laughs) And he showed me many animals and different things. 
then he took me for a ride in his Ferrari for a lunch. And George is kind of short, so he was his seat was way back and he was almost laying down in the car we were flying through this little town up in northern california we went to a restaurant not that i don't like salad but that's all they had was was sal- <laughs> <laughs> then i got a really uh, an almost like a migraine headache and i could hardly wait to get to home and i even before i got home I kind of crawled into a phone booth and phoned my agent. I said, there's no way, I know no way I can do this. He said, David, 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 calm down. You don't have to do this. And um, so George, bless his heart, I told him on the phone the next day that he should direct it. It's his film. He invented everything about it. But he doesn't really love directing. And... So someone else did direct that film, but um, I did. I called my lawyer and told him that I wasn't going to do it, and he said, "You just lost. I don't know how many millions of dollars." He eventually and reluctantly put Ronnie Rocket on the back burner, but he had another original screenplay called Blue Velvet that he began to attempt to set up in this period. Ideas for this film had been coming to him in fragments since 1973, and the project had become increasingly prominent in his mind, but he also couldn't get that film financed. A producer named Richard Roth approached him about doing an adaptation of the Thomas Harris Hannibal Lecter novel, Red Dragon, and when he declined, he then also pitched Blue Velvet to him, and was then asked to pitch the film again to a Warner Brothers executive who gave Lynch more money to write the script. The first two drafts Lynch turned in were, by his own account, nowhere close to being finished, and so it was no huge surprise to him when Warner Brothers told him that they hated both of his drafts. It's at this point that Nasita brings Lynch, Dune. The rights to the book were first optioned from Frank Herbert in 1971 by Arthur P. Jacobs, an independent producer who died of a heart attack shortly after acquiring the property. Three years later, in 1974, a French consortium led by Jean-Paul Gibbon bought the rights and hired Chilean filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky, who planned to translate the novel into a 10-hour feature, with design by H.R. Giger of Alien fame and a starring role for Salvador Dali. After spending $2 million and two years in pre-production, that project fell apart. There's an amazing documentary that came out in 2013 titled Jodorowsky's Dune that chronicles this story of one of the most famous unmade films. Famous film producer Dino De Laurentiis bought the rights in 1976 for $2 million and commissioned a screenplay from the author of the novel, Frank Herbert, who delivered a script that was far too long to be adapted into a feature-length film. In 1979, De Laurentiis hired Rudy Wurlitzer to write a script to be directed by Ridley Scott, but seven months into that project, Scott left to direct the science fiction noir classic, Blade Runner. At that point, De Laurentiis' daughter, Raffaella, entered the picture. When she saw The Elephant Man, she decided that David Lynch should direct Dune. She was impressed by his ability to create worlds that were totally believable, and was there the day that Lynch and De Laurentiis met. Lynch had never even heard of the novel that the film was going to be adapting, and initially thought that he was being asked to meet Dino De Laurentiis to speak about a film named Dune, as in the calendar month. De Laurentiis, who died in 2010 at the age of 91, was apparently a difficult man to say no to. 
He was a larger-than-life character who introduced Lynch to the glamorous world of international cinema, and he was also responsible for producing a number of Federico Fellini classics, including La Strada, as well as Ingmar Bergman's The Serpent's Egg. Over the course of his 70-year career, De Laurentiis produced or co-produced more than 500 films. Given his reaction to George Lucas and the Star Wars universe, it's unsurprising that Lynch was initially hesitant to take on the job of directing Dune, but De Laurentiis was persuasive, signing Lynch on for a three-picture deal. While a lot of people, perhaps justifiably so given how much this film sticks out in his catalogue of work, assume that Lynch said yes to the project purely as a financial commitment, Lynch connected with the story of Dune as a quest for enlightenment and felt like it was something that he was meant to be a part of. He brought on his Elephant Man co-writers, Chris DeVore and Eric Berggren, again to work on the script, both of whom were huge fans of the book and were incredibly excited to be involved in bringing it to the big screen. Lynch also spent a day with Frank Herbert and his wife, Beverly, with Berggren, DeVore and De Laurentiis' son, Federico. Once Lynch began writing with his two collaborators, it became clear that they each had a different idea of what Dune was. Lynch already had an idea of the sort of things that De Laurentiis liked and didn't like and knew that he definitely was not going to like the direction that DeVore and Bergen were taking the script. De Laurentiis was a much more action-oriented filmgoer. Lynch has said in the past that he hired the director of The Elephant Man, and definitely not the director of Eraserhead, and so was much less inclined to lean into the philosophical and more abstract elements of the source novel, something that I would argue entirely misses the point of the novel. The three of them worked on this script for a year. The script was required to adhere to a PG rating, and so limitations were put into place before a word was even written. They worked together on the Universal lot and completed two drafts of the script, but De Laurentiis thought that both drafts were too long, and that there was no way that the project could be broken down into two separate films, a move that has proven to be ironic and retrospectively misguided with the success of Denis Villeneuve's 2021 adaptation. Lynch also felt that the script could be shorter, but DeVore and Berggren were worried about straying too far from the novel, concerned that removing sections wholesale would actually begin to change the very essence of the narrative. Lynch also wanted to put things into the script that weren't in the novel, at which point DeVore and Berggren left the project, encouraging Lynch to continue pursuing his own vision of Dune. In the fall of 1982, casting agent Elizabeth Lustig travelled across several US cities looking for a young, unknown actor to play the lead role in Dune, and she came across Kyle MacLachlan. He was performing on stage at the Empty Space Theatre at the University of Washington, where he was a recent graduate of the Actors Training Program. Lustig told Lynch that he had to meet MacLachlan, and taped MacLachlan in a meeting at the Four Seasons Hotel in late December of 1982. In early 1983, he was flown over to LA to meet Lynch and Rafaela De Laurentiis. McLaughlin's taste in films ran to swashbucklers like The Three Musketeers, and so while he had seen Eraserhead, he didn't know what to make of it, and he certainly didn't know what to expect before meeting Lynch on the Universal lot. When they met for the first time, they talked about growing up in the Northwest and red wine, before Lynch eventually said, Here's the script learn the scenes, then come back, and we'll film them. Over the next period of prepping and shooting Dune, Lynch and McLaughlin developed a firm friendship, but perhaps more importantly from the perspective of his filmmaking, Lynch developed one of the key creative relationships in his career with McLaughlin. 
McLaughlin has often been described as Lynch's on-screen alter ego, and McLaughlin describes the process of shooting Dune as the process of learning to put his complete faith in Lynch to guide him through the process of making films. Like everything involved with Dune, the cast was huge, including 39 different speaking parts. Jose Ferrer, Linda Hunt, frequent Lynch collaborator Jack Nance, Dean Stockwell, Max von Sydow, and De Laurentiis' first wife, Italian film star Silvana Mongano, are among some of the performers who appear in the film. Kenneth MacMillan, Freddie Jones, and Brad Dourif all look like they're having a ball in Dune playing some of the more twisted characters in the piece. The cast also includes the musician Sting, one of the more eye-catching casting choices in the film, who had been exploring acting at the time and had featured in four film roles before he met Lynch. He met Lynch in London while he was casting Dune and was already a big fan of Eraserhead. Lynch apparently seemed to like Sting and invited him to Mexico to shoot Dune over the summer in between recording sessions for what turned out to be the biggest police album, Synchronicity. Sting's character, Fade Rautha Harkonnen, a spectacularly beautiful killing machine, is one of the more iconic images to endure from this film in all of its strangeness and campiness. He first appears in the film emerging from a wall of steam, glistening and wet, wearing nothing but what Sting described as rubber underpants. Here's Sting himself on this costuming choice. David presented them to me and I said, no, I am not wearing those, and he said, yes, you are. That first entrance I made was kind of a bone of contention because I'd never really seen myself as a homoerotic item, but in these flying underpants, I felt that there was no other way to play the scene, and David agreed. After being in and out of Mexico for almost six months of pre-production, Lynch settled in for the shoot in March of 1983. Two weeks were devoted to rehearsals, and filming began on the 30th of March. No expense was spared on Dune, which had a reported budget of $40 million. There were 1,700 people in the cast and crew. Four camera units worked simultaneously on 80 sets that filled eight sound stages, and exteriors were shot in the Samaliuka dune fields. It was there that the shoot began in nearly 50 degree heat. They were there for two weeks, and a crew of 300 swept the sand dunes in preparation. Production designer Anthony Masters, who also worked on Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, was on board, as was special effects artist Carlo Rambaldi, who gave us the creatures in both Ridley Scott's Alien and Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Taking on a film of this scale was a huge leap for Lynch, and Sting recalled being, quote, amazed that David went from making this tiny little movie in black and white to this huge canvas, and I was impressed by how calm he was about it. I never had the sense that he was overwhelmed, and everybody loved him. He remained peachy keen throughout. It was also, by all accounts, a rambunctious set. Dune was an exhausting film to make, and people blew off steam accordingly. Principal photography wrapped on Dune on the 9th of September in 1983, after which Lynch spent another four months in Mexico, working with models and special effects, creating some of the most memorable imagery in the film. Once that additional work was completed, Lynch moved to an apartment in West Los Angeles in February of 1984, where he lived for the next six months while the film was edited. The first rough cut of Dune, which was screened once by Lynch in Mexico, ran at over five hours long. Lynch's intended cut, as reflected in the seventh draft of the script, ran at almost three hours long. 
The final cut that was released to the public was two hours and 17 minutes long. Needless to say, much of what he wanted in the film was in the end left on the cutting room floor, and he was forced to make concessions in the editing process that he has since been vocal and explicit in his deep regrets over. These months in Los Angeles were hard on Lynch. He said, a year and a half into Dune, I had a feeling of deep horror, but I learnt about making movies and the business of Hollywood in the process of making it. In the 2001 BBC documentary, The Last Movie Mogul, Dino De Laurentiis conceded, we destroyed Dune in the editing room. Given that De Laurentiis had final cut of the film, one can only assume that he means I when he says we. Raffaella De Laurentiis said, if David had had final cut, it would not have been a better picture. He did a cut and I saw it. It was five hours long and it was impenetrable if you were able to stay awake. Raffaella De Laurentiis also said, the biggest mistake that we made was trying to be too faithful to the book. We felt like, my god, it's Dune, how can we fuck around with it? But a movie is different from a book and you have to understand that from the start. If I'm being totally honest, while it does sound like Lynch was in trouble from the start, attempting to adapt the entirety of the first Dune novel into one feature film, it does read to me like the people giving Lynch the money and backing him to make this film also did not understand the task that they were asking Lynch to undertake. I wonder, in fact, what a trilogy of films covering the events of both Dune and Dune Messiah would have looked like were they directed by Lynch and written by Chris DeVore and Eric Berggren without the constant and overbearing presence of a producer like Dino De Laurentiis. By the time Dune was released to the world, it was ravaged by most critics, with a few notable exceptions. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel named it the worst film of the year, and Richard Corliss of Time magazine said it was as difficult as a final exam. Lynch was halfway through the script for Dune 2 when Dune was released, but the plug was pulled on the franchise following its failure. Among the film's most surprising supporters was Frank Herbert himself. In the introduction to his short story collection called I, released in 1985, he wrote, What reached the screen is a visual feast that begins as Dune begins, and you hear my dialogue all through it. Lynch had a great rapport with Frank Herbert, and he was pleased with how Lynch interpreted the book, and he gave the film his stamp of approval. While this word of affirmation from Frank Herbert meant a lot to Lynch, the overall experience of Dune after principal photography wrapped for Lynch was one of increasing dread, panic and regret. Can I ask you why you considered Dune a disappointment? Dune I didn't have final cut on. It's the only film I've made that I didn't have. I didn't technically have final cut on The Elephant Man, but Mel Brooks gave it to me. And on Dune, I started selling out even in the script phase, uh, knowing I didn't have final cut. Um, and I, I sold out. So it was, um, it was a slow dying the death and a terrible, terrible experience. Do you regret making it? Yes, uh, except um, it just nailed this idea, never, ever do a film without Final Cut. And um, why would I have done it? I don't know how it happened. I trusted that it would work out, but um, it was very naive and um, the wrong move. It's got a lot of fans. There's some things about it 
but overall it was squeezed because in those days um, the maximum length they figured I could have was two hours and 17 minutes and that's what the film is so they could get they wouldn't lose a screening a day and so it's again money talking and not for the film at all and so it was like compacted and um, it hurt it it hurt it Carl McLaughlin also has mixed feelings about his first appearance on the big screen. He said, I look at my performance and cringe because I was so new to acting in front of a camera. In some ways, it worked though because I was playing a character that moves through a youthful boyish period then is tested and must grow into a leader. I guess they got me at that right time because I was really green on that movie. I think David did a great job though. Ultimately, there was no way to flesh out the intricacy of the world that Frank Herbert created because there were just too many things going on in the book. But I can watch Dune and enjoy it for the sheer impact of the visuals and the fact that David was imprinting that material with his vision. The Harkonnens, the train car coming into the palace, my god, it's genius. I call it a flawed masterpiece. After the film's theatrical run, a TV cut of the film was put together to be broadcast, clocking in at a little under three hours without commercials. Further illustrating Lynch's desire to put as much distance between him and Dune as possible, this version of the film is credited as being directed by Alan Smithy, the pseudonym that was used at that time for films without a director to credit. One big reason that Lynch refused to have his name attached to this version of the film was that fabricated or cheated footage made up of repeated stock footage from certain points in the film were used to make it appear that footage had been added to pad out the runtime. This cut of the film also uses outtakes and test close-ups that were never actually intended for use in the final cut of the film, even by Dino De Laurentiis. The experience that I understand you had in regards to making a racer head which took five years, and you were working in order to continue to make that movie. And then Dune, which you had $40 million of funding, and you've said it was like being in a prison. Well, no, it wasn't exactly that way. Um, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, and you can do a lot with a little. And um, Eraserhead, I delivered the Wall Street Journal, is how I made my money. I made $50 a week. I lived on $200 a month. I had everything I have now. I don't know how life got so expensive these days. <laughs> and um, so I could build a set for $35 or $40. Now a set is two or $300,000, some of them. It's re really ridiculous. So. Uh, and Dune wasn't 45 million. Dino said it was 45 million because he came from a time when uh, big and grandiose was the best. But really, in the time he said these things, people were turned off by that amount of money. So, uh, but Dino is a, was a crafty fellow, and he did it for far less than 45 million. Lynch was eager to put Dune behind him, but his relationship with the De Laurentiis family remained strong. As we've covered a bit before in this look into the career and creative life of David Lynch, he has a love of body parts, and after Dune was completed, Dino De Laurentiis' daughter, Raffaella, had to have a hysterectomy. Lynch asked her if he could have her uterus, to which she said, sure, why not? Unsurprisingly, when she then asked for the hospital to give her her uterus, they said no, so she had her stepson go to the butcher and get the uterus of a pig put it in a jar with formaldehyde, 
taped her hospital bracelet to the jar and gave it to David Lynch. Apparently, he kept that jar in his fridge for years. As for Dino De Laurentiis, he never lost faith in Lynch, despite the problems that he had with Dune, and after the dust had settled following the opening of the film, he asked him what he wanted to do next. Lynch replied that he wanted to make Blue Velvet. At that point, a turnaround clause on an early draft of Blue Velvet that had been pitched to Warner Brothers had lapsed and ownership of the script had reverted to the studio. De Laurentiis called the president of Warner Brothers and bought back the rights. Lynch made it clear that he'd insist on having final cut of the picture if they made it together, and De Laurentiis stipulated that if he cut his salary and the budget of the film in half, he could have it. Making Dune took a lot out of Lynch in a lot of different ways, but getting to know Dino and his family was worth the nightmare of making Dune, because it led to Blue Velvet. David, do you want to say anything about Dune? Not a lot. (laughs) Except to once again say that it's very important for a filmmaker to have final cut, total creative control. And I knew that even before Dune. And for some reason, I thought, well, everything will be okay. And I signed the contract and everything wasn't okay. So it was a a terrible thing, and as I always say, um, the film was not a success, and uh, so I died the death in that regard, and then I felt I had sold out, so I died twice. But um, Dune was Dino De Laurentiis, right? Yes. And so was Blue Velvet. Yes, I love Dino, I love Raffaele, his daughter, Great, great. Dino taught me how to cook uh, rigatoni. And um, Dino was such a great character. I, I really loved him. We just did not see eye to eye, and he had the power. But then I went and worked with him again with Final Cut on Blue Velvet. So how did you get Final Cut on Blue Velvet? I asked, asked for it. <laughs> As always, please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever you're catching it and to share it with a friend. If you like this show and you want to see it reaching more people, the easiest way for you to contribute to that is just by writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch and let me know what you think of David Lynch's Dune or really any other film that we've covered on this show, you can either find us on socials or you can email us directly at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and a whole bunch of other people that love movies. My first short story collection, called Where Lies the Strangling Fruit, is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have the link to that down below. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. That's all for now, and I'll see you next week for another episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast. (music) 